Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so happy you tuned in today. Today's episode is brought to you by Endoband. Endoband provides you with a quick and easy workout on the go. I met the husband of today's guest at a writing conference last year, and when we got to talking about this show, he mentioned his wife wrote a book called The Other Side of Impossible. I immediately ordered the book as we were talking, read it a few days later, and quickly got in touch with the author, Susanna Meadows, to get her on the show. So here we are. Welcome, Susanna. Thanks, Harper. Of course. So happy to have you here. So tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. I'm a journalist, and I have spent most of my career writing for Newsweek magazine and then later for the New York Times. And one of the pieces that I wrote for the Times a couple years ago was about my son. And that was the beginning of this book. I realized when I wrote that piece that there was a lot more to say. Love that. So as I mentioned, I connected with your husband, Darren Strauss, because he told me a little bit about the challenges that you were dealing with with your son. Can you tell us a little bit about where that began? I know he was three years old, which is quite young. Yeah. So here's the story. When he was three, we noticed that he started limping. And initially, we thought, well, maybe he landed hard on the playground and it was just an injury. And so we were just sort of keeping an eye on it for a week or two. And then there was a point when he started running and immediately burst into tears. And we realized, oh, this is something we have to deal with. So that began a series of doctor visits. And we finally wound up with a rheumatologist who diagnosed Shepard with juvenile idiopathic arthritis, which is an autoimmune arthritis I didn't even know that was possible for kids. Um, I mean, the idea of arthritis in a child sounded so odd to me. And why would you know that? Yeah. I mean, it's a rare, it's a rare disease and we associate arthritis with, you know, wear and tear and old age. But this was different because this was his immune system attacking his body. By that point, it had been a month since we had first gone to the pediatrician and Shepard had progressed from as I said, crying when he ran to then having trouble getting out of bed. So we started him on the medication right away. And medication is effective for a lot of people, a lot of kids who have this disease. It was not effective for Shepard. And in addition to not really taking care of the pain and the arthritis, it made him feel sick. And so we sort of found ourselves in this position of you know, we were told this is something he would always have. There was no cure. He was, this is, we, he had this for life. And at the same time, the medication that he had to take so that his joints weren't damaged made him feel sick. So it was just, we had no good options. And I just could not accept that that was going to be his life. Here's this little three-year-old. And is he going to go through life lying on the couch feeling sick all day? No. (laughs) Even though we were told those were our options. And so we lucked into hearing about another mom whose child had the same condition and she had experimented with his diet, thinking that there was a problem with the gut and that the 
inflammation in Shepard's body originated in the gut. And she had some research to support her thinking. But this was one example of a success and no way to know that what she did is the thing that helped her son. But we were desperate. We were completely desperate. And we also figured that experimenting with a diet is not taking any risks. And we even checked it with our doctor and he said, yeah, go ahead. (laughs) So we just sort of, I just took notes. I called this woman. I never, you know, I didn't know her. She was a friend of my sister's sister-in-law and um and she was nice enough to talk to me on the phone she said here's what we did so we tried it thinking we had nothing to lose while keeping him on these drugs so he stayed on his medication because that was one thing his doctor was adamant about which was look you can't take him off these drugs because that could lead to you know the longer inflammation you've got inflammation in your joints you know it'll just do damage and so that can people who People who have, you know, rheumatoid arthritis and don't treat the inflammation can become disabled. And obviously, we didn't want to take that risk with Shepard. So we kept him on the drugs. We launched into this diet experiment. Uh, We took gluten and dairy out of his diet. We gave him high doses of omega-3s in fish oil because those are anti-inflammatory, limited as sugar, all with the idea that It was possible that he had some sensitivity to these foods and that that sensitivity was creating inflammation in the gut and that that was leading then to an inflammatory response in the body. So we're five weeks into this experiment. Shepard's still feeling terrible and Darren and I are fighting, you know, what the hell are we doing? And so it was a tough time to sort of get to that point. Our doctor was saying, you know, the medication's not effective. We need to we need to raise the dose here. And I argued that can we just give, can we just try this experiment before raising the dose of the stuff that's making him feel sick? And our doctor was fine with that. He said, okay, you know, six weeks, like, that's okay. We can wait a couple weeks. <laughs> and the so the mom who'd helped us had said after six weeks, her son's pain had gone away. And so we were really, we were really focused on that calendar <laughs> getting, and it was five more days, yeah, four more days. Yeah. And so, as I mentioned, you know, at this point, Shepard is having trouble getting out of bed. So I was in the habit every morning of going into his room and helping him up and sick. I kid you not, six weeks to the day went in to do my thing of helping him out of bed. And he was already standing and he said, mommy, my knees don't hurt anymore. And disappeared out of the room, scampered out of the room, which he wasn't doing any of at that point. Six weeks to the day. To the day. And we were floored, as you might imagine. And then what happened was the most amazing thing. So his knees stopped hurting. And then he had arthritis at one point. I think we counted. It was up to 27 joints or something like that. The arthritis passed out of his body It was almost joint by joint. It was the most remarkable thing. And he was seeing a physical therapist at the time who was sort of marveling at this. And she would test his joints. And it was as if he was stepping into a curative water because it kind of moved up his body from his feet, knees, and then out his arms and fingers. And then he was fine. (laughs) And he's been fine ever since. Um, and he's now, so that he was three and now he's 11 and in perfect health. In fact, his, uh, we continue to see over all these years, his pediatric rheumatologist who, um, 
who just, you know, we'd go and see him for checkups. And the last visit, he said, Shepard, I think you're graduating. You don't need to see me anymore. You're just, you've been so healthy for so long. How did it feel to hear that? Oh, my gosh. I mean, we think about it daily, how lucky we got. There's no way to know. There's no way to know exactly what made Shepard better. But the fact is, he's healthy. And we were looking at a lifetime of his feeling terrible and being sick and, you know, thinking of your child, having a sick child is something that you, it's it's sort of, I don't think I ever understood it before what the sort of horror until Shepard was sick. So we are very grateful family. Understandably so. So when I read your New York Times Magazine article, which is titled The Boy with a Thorn in His Joints, you said when you got the diagnosis from this doctor, quote, this is great news. Now that we know what's wrong, you can take medicine that will make you feel better. Were you truly feeling that way? Did well, there you was feel some like relief. Having- sure. And I th- and I I think that's a common thing of when you finally get the answer of this is the thing causing the problem. Uh, then you then can start to think about treating it. And at that point, I had a hundred percent faith in the best doctors. And when, and we were seeing one of them. And when he says to us, look, these medications are effective. The risks of, um, side effects are low. Um, and you know, I'm a, I'm a journalist, so I have a lot of confidence in getting the best information and, things that have been studied and and all of that. And so it took a while while Shepard was sick and still struggling. It took quite a bit of time for me to start questioning all of that um, and to sort of think, okay, well, maybe there are answers beyond this. This doctor in particular and, and other good physicians know more about medicine than I ever will, but it doesn't mean they know everything. And there might be something outside of their realm of expertise. And that, it, but and that is what I came to realize. It took some time. And and then it, it sort of took, surprisingly, for someone who asks questions for a living, it took time for me to start questioning that um, and the sort of conventional medicine model that we have and, and to sort of wonder, you know, if wonder about that, the whole thing. It was quite a revelation in not only our lives and our happiness, of course, but also just in thinking and and in truth and in and finding answers. It's such an interesting thing to think about, you know, questioning doctors. But I think about the number of times I've gone to my team of doctors and said, hey, so do you think that CBD oil would help? Or if I went vegan, would things change with my health? And they sort of shrug and they're really open to, if you explore this, come back to us and let us know how it's going. But it's not what they're experts in. It's not what they know, just as you have written about and spoken about. But it sounds like the doctor that you were seeing with Shepard was open to you guys trying things out as long as he was sticking to the drugs. For sure. And he was as good as you could get, I think, um, as a partner. I think there were, you know, there were other people. There was another doctor we saw and she was much more closed. And we sort of went running back to the arms of our original physician. And, you know, I think for good reason, we ha- our system is evidence-based medicine, as it should be, and it should be conservative. But the idea that just because we have this system, it doesn't mean that they know 
everything even that's been studied. I mean, the fact is, when I started digging on my own when I was writing about this for the Times, I was amazed to find that there actually was evidence to support the idea that taking something like gluten and dairy out of a person's diet could improve arthritis symptoms. That evidence exists. It Most of it comes out of Scandinavia, but you sort of learn, you know, it was this, you, you realize, oh, there are cultural differences. And in this country, we focus on medicine and pills that can improve our symptoms. And in other cultures, people are curious about what you can change about your diet and will that affect inflammation. And so to find it's just much messier than, oh, there's evidence for this, there's not evidence for that. Or this, you know, alternative medicine, there's no evidence for, you know, even the term, you know, I don't really, I don't think of it in terms of alternative medicine. I think of, you know, I think of it as, well, what do we have, you know, what <laughs> what works? <laughs> whatever, whatever works is medicine. Yeah, um, I like the word complementary. Yeah, sure. And then to, to sort of categorize something um, as lesser, and, you know, it's a sort of dist category of alternative medicine. It doesn't make any sense to me. Like if, if taking gluten out of my son's diet helps him, well, then that's not an alternative. That's the medicine. <laughs> that's the answer. Yeah. One of the things that you addressed in the book and that Darren, your husband, and I talked about was that you guys had conflicting feelings. Right. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, as I think I mentioned, we it when Shepard was still struggling and we had different ideas Darren and I about w- which path to pursue and it led to a lot of arguing um in the kitchen <laughs> where where most things happen. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean the the truth of it is it is much more comfortable to have complete faith in the expert doctor that you're seeing. And I kind of, in a way, wish I could go back to that that world where I thought this person has all the answers and that person will guide me. And what this experience taught me is that's not enough, maybe sometimes. And you have to look beyond sometimes. And to leave that world of comfort is it's the pits. I mean, you're because you're on your own and you are trying to figure it out yourself and you're unsure of what you're doing and you don't know the terminology. And so... Darren wanted to stay in that world of comfort, which I understood. I just could not accept that this is how it was going to be. And willing to kind of, I don't know, I was willing to, and he eventually was too, but it took some doing. And then, as he may have told you, he quietly was thinking, "This (laughs) this is the kind of thing that breaks up marriages. Meanwhile, my experience of it was very different, where I was so focused on Shepard that I wasn't giving any thought to Darren, which you could see would be a problem in a relationship. (laughs) But at the time I was just, I had, I was in biology mode. I was, you know, I was trying to protect this child and just had no, and I remember actually coming out of it when Shepard got better and thinking, oh, Darren and I did pretty well. (laughs) Wow. That's so interesting. (laughs) Like we, we kind of stuck, we stuck together pretty well and he had a completely different, and even for that, for the article I was writing about it, my editor wanted to know, I want, you know, you said, I want to know what you guys fought about. I want to know what you said when you left the doctor's office. And I, I actually didn't have a good memory of it. And Darren was out of town. And I had to call and interview him. <laughs> <laughs> 
tell us what our experience was like. What did you say? And then what did I say? Because I think it was so traumatic for me that I just was, uh, or I was so focused on the illness. Uh, I got that. I get that completely. I interviewed my mom. It'll air before this episode comes out. And I said to her, so once we got the diagnosis of my health when I was 10, what did we do from there? And we both sat here for like three minutes going, we don't even remember. We got this diagnosis, as you and I just discussed, of so glad to have this answer. But then what happened? We just sort of blocked it out. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing you learn when you try and go back and reconstruct is how by definition fallible memory is. And so you want to get, you want to get a couple sources because I mean, it, it's really remarkable. And when I interviewed people for my book, you know, people within the same family would have totally different accounts of what happened. And especially when you add the layer of stress. <laughs> of course. That's, a, you know. Well, and so you mentioned that you sort of neglected or weren't really thinking about Darren as much as you were your son. But to add to the picture, you also have another son who's not just another son, but a twin. Yeah, an identical twin. So what was that relationship like? And how did you handle and navigate him while going through this crazy time? I think that Bo, who's our other son, was maybe more scarred from the experience of Shepard being sick than Shepard was. Because even though at the time I was completely aware of the fact that all of our energy is going towards Shepard. I was completely aware that I had to be working hard to make sure that Bo did not pick up on that and that I was, that it was equal. I mean, when Shepard was not feeling well, he spent every moment on my lap, every moment. And so I was always saying, Bo, come sit on my lap too. And, you know, they were small enough and they would both sit on my lap. <laughs> I would just be sitting there, <laughs> you know, with these two kids on my lap. But, um, so, even even though I was aware and trying my best, he still came out of it, I think, um, with because, of course, because he's picking up on all the anxiety and, and the focus. And um, he still came out of it, I think, with this feeling like he was off to the side and was not the center because he wasn't. And it was, there was no way to navigate that correctly. And so I've, you know, it's that's a a kind of crushing thing to think about as a mom. He will say now that, well, I, I said, I don't, you know, I don't feel that way anymore. And he can now articulate um, that he did feel left out and felt like Shepard got more attention. Um, but he, I think he's thriving and happy. So um, there aren't any major concerns, but I think it, you know, it's, it will always be sad for me. How old are they now? 11. And so has, Shepard stuck to this diet that you put him on back in the day? No. Um, one of the women that I write about in the book is a is someone who developed a protocol for children with severe food allergies. And and so I tell the story of a family who goes through her who goes through the therapy, child who had twenty seven food allergies comes out eating everything. And so I tell that story. And in the process of reporting that story, she said to me, why don't, why don't I work with Shepard and see if I can reintroduce these foods to him? And that way you will learn what I do. And so we decided to do that. So she is someone who has practiced reintroducing foods to allergic children. And so she did the same for Shepard. And so he now eats everything. And her therapy is so incredible. I mean, as, as anyone listening to this who knows about allergies knows, there's no, there's nothing you can do for a child with allergies. 
food allergies. Uh, but this woman, her name is Amy Terringer. Her insight was that an allergic reaction looks a lot like a panic attack. And she won. And when she would see these children have an allergic reaction to her, it looked like PTSD. And so she had this insight that what if I, if I could treat the anxiety, would that help their allergic response? And so she kind of developed this protocol around that. She's been so successful that now she's being studied by Boston Children's Hospital, which I think is so exciting because it's such an out of the box approach. You know, it shows how reaching outside of traditional approaches might be useful. We'll see how, you know, what the upshot of her study is. Anyway, she was successful with Shepard. And I learned in researching the book, I was talking to researchers all the time. And um, one guy I spoke to who's at Mass General, who does a lot of celiac disease research and a lot of leaky gut research, um, said to me, you know, that Shepard's I, I called him out and I said, does it make any sense to you that this child with autoimmune arthritis recovered after removing gluten from his diet? Like, does that, can you understand that? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, I see it all the time. And I was like, where have you been? And why aren't you talking to the rheumatologist? It's the idea that, you know, people, there's too much information and not everyone's going to have all the information, even if it's in his specialty. So anyway... What that researcher said to me, the gastroenterologist was, okay, this is speculation, but here's what happened to your son. <laughs> he said, I think he got an infection. I said, yeah, that's right. And then he took antibiotics. And I said, yes, that's right. And then he got the arthritis. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. And then, <laughs> so, and then he said, and so the, the antibiotics and infection messed up his gut bacteria. That made him more, uh, made him, you know, when he ate gluten, it made, he, he had a sort of leaky gut situation. Gluten can ex- exacerbate that that can lead to the autoimmune response. You know, he lays it all out. And then he said, but what can happen is over time, when you kind of settle things down and your gut can recover, you can tolerate foods again. And so he he offered an explanation for that as well. So, you know, who knows? <laughs> but um, anyway, Shepard, yeah, eats everything. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Endoband. For someone like me who spends way too much time on my laptop, and also loves to travel, the ease of having my endoband in my backpack or my suitcase allows me to work out anytime, anywhere. Endo stands for no days off. Stretch anywhere without having to go to the gym or pay for a class. The endoband helps me wake up, fight midday fatigue, and get a mini workout in while traveling. Endobands come in several different colors and can even wrap around your wrists like a bracelet. After working at events for many years, I've seen gift bags filled with a lot of crap that immediately gets thrown out. The Endoban is the perfect item to include in your corporate programming or upcoming event gift bag as you can brand it with your logo. Then your employees or clients will have a useful product that will help them feel good and automatically associate it with you. Get your Endoband at endoband.com and use promo code MVP for 20% off your entire purchase. That's N-D-O-Band.com, promo code MVP for 20% off. Your body doesn't take days off. Why should you? Now, back to the show. There's a lot of question marks in a lot of things that we discuss on the podcast here because you just never know or why did something happen. Right. Like, 
okay, that was like a one time, you know, period in your life. Is there any fear in you, especially as a mother, that he may relapse or that something else comes up? Well, I've gotten a lot better. Um, I certainly over the years have struggled a little bit with anxiety about that. But as the years tick by, I become more confident. And the other thing I took away from the whole experience is if someone gets sick again, we've now been through this thing that we thought we'd never overcome. And so, and I've learned so much from that. And so I know the first thing you do is you make a list, you make a list of people to see, and you keep seeing people and you see all kinds of people. And there are always more things to try. And so that actually is a very empowering feeling because we have so many diseases that there aren't good answers for. But we know, I know now that that's not the end of the road. And plus, you know, I'm particularly excited about all of the microbiome research now. And, And thankfully, it's getting the funding that it deserves. And I think that, you know, we're already seeing early results that suggests that we're going to be able to possibly tackle a lot of our health issues. When I was working on the book, all roads led back to our gut bacteria. Yeah, no, it's a it's a really interesting thing. And there's a lot more information coming out about it that I think is really helpful to people. So your career has been in journalism. And I was wondering, did writing about your son and your family's journey with his health come naturally to you? No. What was that experience like? <laughs> no, I resisted it. And I, in fact, my husband, as you mentioned, writes also. I think he said that. Um, and he wrote a memoir years ago. And I appear in the memoir because we got married. And I, at a certain point, I said to him, Can, would it be possible for you just to cut me out of the entire thing? I mean, I just was so uncomfortable <laughs> because I, that's not, if you're a reporter, you are not the one who's being written about. Yeah. You're the behind the scenes. Yeah. Person. And I just am not comfortable in that role. And so when, when Shepard recovered and we realized that it was possible and likely in my view, that it was the intervention that we tried the experiment that doctors don't know about <laughs> um, when we thought, you know, we realized, oh, we have this information. We And Shepard may have gotten better because of it. We can't sit on it. And people aren't going to get the information from their doctors. And if I were going through this again, I sure would like to read an article that might help me. So, um, but I didn't, I didn't want to have to do it. I said, Darren and I went back and forth. I said, you write about it. He said, no, you write about it. And you write about it. And literally, that was a conversation we had. And Over then, what period of time? <laughs> it was a couple months. I mean, I just was, but we knew it had to be done. And eventually I accepted the fact that I was better equipped because I am a reporter and he makes things up. <laughs> so, <laughs> Aside from his memoir and crazy life yeah, that he's lived. Yeah, he's a fiction writer usually. And but I knew that what the what the piece required, um and ultimately what the book required was to find out what science was there that could explain this. Because this is a thing that no one seems to know about, that the taking foods out of your diet can help you. Is there science out there that actually can explain what happened and and why this may have worked with him? And so that, and as I said, I was so surprised to find that there was stuff. But that was an important part, I think, of telling that story. And what made you not just write this article for the New York Times Magazine, but turn it into a book? Well, as I was working on that piece and I was interviewing researchers that you, you know, you're talking to people and you, I started hearing stories of others. And I heard about a woman who 
had MS and she had recovered from MS, which is officially is not possible. And so I, and then there were other stories. There was the woman with the allergy therapy where she was doing something that we don't think is possible. And so I just kept hearing these stories and they were amazing stories. And I just knew I had to tell them partly just because they're great stories. And also just because I knew there was a, there was value to people hearing about success and then also learning that, that, that perhaps they're not flukes because they're, you know, the science is in there. And, and in a lot of cases, there are studies that can, that suggest that, you know, doing these certain things can work. I mean, one of the children of the woman who recovered from MS said to me, all you need is one, meaning one story of success so that you can have hope. And I thought that, you know, that was certainly a major factor in our story and on our lives to hear this one success story. And um, so, yeah, I just felt that I I had to do it. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up the one story concept. It's making me think a really close friend of mine was dealing with some health issue after going to the gym about a year ago. And she ended up in the hospital and they were trying to figure out what was going on. And she went online and Googled the things that she had dealt with after coming out of the gym, went online and read an article. And every Every single line in the article explained what she had dealt with. Mm. This person's story was exactly her story. And so she went to the doctor and said, hey, I think I have, you know, I forget the name of the condition. I think I have this. And when they did their research, it all matched up. But for her, she went in and they're going like, we have no idea what happened to you in the gym. Why did your blood pressure drop and you have these symptoms? And she's like, this is this is what I got. This is what I have. And so it's so interesting to decide, you know, not only did you go through this and overcome it and get through it together as a family, but also the need to share with other people and be able to help other people. So since you put the book out there, what's it been like? What's the response been? Well, the best part of it has been to hear from people who've said, oh, we tried what you tried and it worked for us. I mean, and I sort of went into it back when I was so reluctant to write about Shepard there was this feeling of, well, if there's one family who can benefit from this, then it's worth it. And that's happened many times over. So I, my, I feel wonderful about it. I mean, I just like, that's what else, I mean, it's just been great. And I continue to hear from people, people abroad. Um, and I'm always happy when people reach out to me and, or even at people that reach out and ask questions and want more information. But what does Shepard think about it? He's been wanting to read it and loves it. I mean, he's delighted to be in it. And there are parts that I've read to him. And I think I, it's the end of the book or end of his chapter where I describe how he tells me about the seeing in a movie, a character saying, when you hit a wall, you push through it. And he wants to share that with me. And then he realizes, oh, like me with arthritis. And I feel like, ah. Oh, like that's your takeaway, then awesome. So he is very enthusiastic. I feel that he's a little young, uh, maybe now to confront the parts about how devastated we were when he was sick. I think that when he's older, he could, that might be more appropriate. Were you uncomfortable in any way about exposing or sharing his story without his permission, given the age? It's interesting. That's a great question. He was so little when I started writing about it that I didn't think think about it, frankly. 
And if I were starting it now, it'd be a much different story, given how an 11 year old is in the world and aware. And, and I, but that said, it was still so important to share the information. And I don't feel that I exposed much. I mean, as, as much as my editor is asking for all the personal details, I've, <laughs> I pushed back as much as I could, even, but I know that those are, I know that that's an important part of the story. Um, I don't think I exposed too much about Shepard, but I definitely did think of that as he got older. Yeah, and I agree that the book is not entirely about him. You also share six other people's stories. So it's not like his memoir, you know, being written. Um, So I think that that's an interesting approach. And it'll be interesting to see how as he grows up, knowing that this thing exists about his childhood, given that you have put this book out there and there's these articles. I mean, I did a lot of digging and checking out your website. There's a lot of content about this topic. What advice would you give to people who receive a diagnosis, whether it's similar to Shepard's or not, how to approach this? The One of the main things that I learned when I came away from working on this book was the value of trying. And that not only that by continuing to see and seeing new doctors and seeing, you know, going just like making your list and never sort of accepting uh, that this is how things are going to be. And you keep seeing people and you keep seeing there's no shortage of options when it comes to seeing doctors. And I but I think that not only could that lead to someone finding an answer or you finding an answer, but I think the act of the actual act of persistence has value. And there's a woman I write about in the book who has rheumatoid arthritis, and her whole way of living is about finding an answer. And she's sure she's going to find it. She's tried every medication. She's tried, you know, everything outside of conventional medicine. Um, she's had mixed results, but she's sure she's going to get there. And that's actually the definition of the placebo effect. So when you're sure, you know, you are sure this thing you're going to do is going to help you. That is what brings about the placebo effect. And the placebo effect just doesn't get its due. It is a major reason that drugs work. I mean, it, it, it's the, the amount that of success of a drug, it's mostly attributed to the placebo effect. So I came away thinking that that kind of, I mean, the trick is, of course, is to have the optimism, but that kind of drive and confidence matters to our health. We know that that that's not up for for debate. And so if you can partly maybe by reading stories of people who've been successful, but if you can get that confidence, the pursuit itself, I think is worthwhile. Love that. That's super helpful advice. Are you continuing to do work around the health side of things? What are you working on these days? I will always be interested in it and I will always follow it. And I keep a keen eye on sort of all the research coming out about the microbiome particularly. And, you know, we know enough now to know that if you've got an unbalanced gut bacteria population, that's associated with all kinds of diseases, allergies, arthritis, autism, it, you know, the list goes on. And that if you have a balanced population by eating a lot of different kinds of fiber um, as one way to help your gut, that's associated with good health. So I'm a little bit obsessive about <laughs> about it. And I'm certainly the but the and I'm very obsessive about our family's diet in that way, where I just feel 
to the, you know, the inform we have enough information to know now how important that is to eat a wide variety of fruits and vegetables. Um, in terms of writing about health, I'm, my next project is a, is totally different. <laughs> I'm ready for a different idea. So you have this topic that there'll be a research project personally, yeah. and maybe something turns of it professionally one day. Yeah, well, I just I have a new story that I'm uh, working on that I plan to turn into a book. Um, but it doesn't have anything to do with health. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, I think that the topic of this book and obviously how we got connected is just amazing. And I love how determined you are to take control and to empower people to take control over your health. And I think, you know, when I read aspects of the book, it was challenging for me to go, wow, I do really have control. And yet there's so many times throughout living with an invisible illness, that you feel powerless, that you feel like you're losing control. Right. So I think it was a real good reminder, even to me, that it's, I can make the decisions and that we and you, the listeners, can make the decisions of what's best for you and where you settle and where you say, I'm, you know, enough is enough. I got to figure out these answers. Right. Well, I'm glad. I mean, I certainly, that was certainly what I learned. It took a while. It's hard. But I am a real believer in that approach. Yeah, it's so important. Well, I thank you for taking the time to chat with me. And can you tell us a little bit about where people can learn more about you, get the book, and connect with you? Sure. My website is SusannaMeadows.com. Um, and you can see all of my work and information about the book there. And, of course, um, the book itself is available wherever you buy books. Perfect. Well, thank you. Thanks, Harper. Thanks for tuning in to Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. We can't do this without your support. Visit madevisiblepodcast.com. Follow Made Visible Podcast on Instagram. Special thanks to the team who made this possible. Elise Bonebright, the audio editor. Gemma Leghorn, the assistant producer. Dylan Chenfeld for the intro music. And Krista Gray for the logo and design concepts.